Welcome to this month's installment of Brass Chats, brought to you by Monster Oil. What is this? 21 year? Hi everybody, welcome to this month's edition of Brass Chats. Today's guest studied at Juilliard under William Vacchiano, held jobs with the Kansas City Symphony, Milwaukee Symphony Orchestra, Cleveland Orchestra, and the Minnesota Orchestra before landing his main gig as the principal trumpet player of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, which he held for 25 years. He released four solo albums. He's taught at the New England Conservatory and the Tanglewood Music Center, and his name is Charlie Schluter. Thank you very much for being with us today, Charlie. Thank you for taking the time to do this. This is great. You started your musical career by winning some free music lessons at your local music store in Duquoin, Illinois, which has a current population of uh, 5,977. It's a coal mining town. What drew you to the trumpet when you won those free music lessons, and how did you get good at it? Well, I'd actually studied for three years before I won the 10 lessons. Uh, I had wanted to play accordion. The only reason I can remember probably wanting to do that was my neighbor's grandchildren played accordion. They'd come to visit in the summer. I thought that was cool. So I used to drool over a Montgomery Ward catalog, which you probably don't remember what that is. It's like Sears, which doesn't really exist anymore. <laughs> uh, so my, my parents took me to the lo local music teacher, Charlie Archibald, who was pretty much self-taught. Um, I found out a lot about him just a few years ago. I, mean, I, I suspected he had absolute pitch. I found out he had like, like photographic memory because during the Depression, they had a WPA band in Southern Illinois, and he was the conductor, but they didn't have any money for music. He copied out, wrote out all the parts for all the, for the entire band from memory. Wow. Yeah. So. And this is your guy. This is the your first music teacher yeah. at a music store. So in the middle of so he says, yeah. "No, you don't want to play accordion. Try my cornet." So that's how that that started. And I had two lessons a week. Uh, I don't remember how long they were, but it was I know they were seventy-five cents. And after three years, my father had his first of many heart attacks, and you know there there was no income, and so even a dollar and a half a week was was too much. And around that time, Don Lemasters moved to Ducoin. And Don had studied in St. Louis with Joe Gustad, who was principal trumpet of the St. Louis Symphony and sort of the guru of the Midwest. And he also studied with Ed Brower, who was Joe's protege, who was like on staff at NBC in, in St. Louis and, and you know, first call on all the freelance gigs. So I, I won the 10 free lessons and that, uh, and, and Don was, I think, getting 250 a lesson back then. I mean, that, that sounds silly today, but you know, that's, you know, 60 years ago, that was, that was big money. And after the last lesson, uh, I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll save up my money and I'll call you when I can afford. He said, ah, just come back next week, which I did for like five years. Wow. And Charlie, even though his, his primary, primary emphasis was on, on rhythm and just reading. I mean, sight reading was never an issue because everything I played was sight reading, which is Al Bacchiano taught too, which is kind of interesting. I mean, I, I don't know if I ever, there must have been some period in there when I, I prepared pieces or worked on etudes and they, the teachers heard again. But <clears throat> Charlie didn't talk anything about embouchure, didn't talk about breathing, didn't talk about like, tonguing or anything else. Well, he did. I mean, I, I, 
I learned a triple tongue like the flutes do with the odd syllable in the middle, which I, I can't imagine how gross that might have sounded, but because uh, I, I can't do that anymore. I mean, a lot of people can alternate like that. But Don completely over, and I, I did my own orthodonture work because I, I had a space between my front teeth. This tooth came in and back, I had terrible overbite, and I had most of the mouthpiece on my top lip. I just, you know, put it on wherever it landed. Wherever it fit, yeah. And I compensated for the overbite by having a big air pocket in my lower lip. What I know, you know, but it worked. Yeah. So, and I, I used whatever mouthpiece came with the trumpet. I mean, you know, I wasn't into anything special. So, Don completely overhauled. He changed my armature, had me move the mouthpiece down, get more of the mouthpiece on the lower lip, which is what Gustav advocated. Put me on a 10 half C, which was like a giant mouthpiece compared to what I'd been playing. It was like an old three or something, which, wow. you know, it was not exactly like Cat Anderson's mouthpiece, which was described as a dime with a dimple, but yeah. probably close. <clears throat> and and he started talking about breathing, which was Gustav's thing. I mean, Gustav had a reputation for, for being an amateur specialist because the people who went to study with him usually had some problem, including Dizzy Gillespie. And Clark Terry, at that time, lived in East St. Louis. He used to send people to study with Gustav. Miles Davis also studied with him. In fact, Miles used a Gustav mouthpiece, but in his book he got things confused a little bit. He talked about Uncle Gus, but he was somehow talking about Gustav Heim, who also made mouthpieces. That's that's uh -huh. that's a whole other, you know, that would take a day or two to talk. <laughs> anyway, that I had this regular routine, you know, I had I practiced in front of a mirror, you know, making sure that, that everything was in the right place. The big thing with Gustav was that the tongue always stayed down at the back of the the mouth and the, the soft palate, which nobody ever talks about, had to be arched. That when people talk about yawning, that's what happens. The soft palate goes up, but actually, you know, the tongue goes up also. But mm -hmm. you have to have that arch and the tongue down, so you have large oral cavity, mm -hmm. which helps contribute to the resonance you get in the sound. I mean, I, that was you know my interpretation years later of how that that all happened. But it's a singing anyway. technique. It's a vocal technique that yeah, singers right. do. Yeah. So after. Five years, uh, Don arranged for me to study with Eddie Brower in St. Louis because he, Don felt there was probably something in things in my playing that that he wasn't spotting that Don that Ed might pick up on. And as it happened, when I went to study with him, I mean, I'd I'd gotten a new trumpet. I got had a LeBlanc, <clears throat> which replaced one of the old trumpets that I had. And because it was so much easier to play, I ended up playing very high on the pitch, and the tuning slide was out about probably about an inch, <clears throat> which of course totally screwed up the intonation on the horn. I mean, I I was happy to play the fourth line D, first and third E flat, like people do on a C trumpet, that mm -hmm. because they very often play with it slide too far. That so I went to study with Eddie, and the, just that one was which a lot of warm-up style that way. And he said, all right, first thing, push your slide in, you know, till it's only out about maybe less than a quarter of an inch and play at the same pitch. Because I, I had this terrible sore lip. I mean, I've, I've been advised by a, a dermatologist that I had an occupational hazard. I mean, everybody knows trumpet playing is an occupational hazard. But, you know, be told that when you're like 15 years old, I mean, come on. So 
it was very hard to suddenly play lower on, on the pitch. And it wasn't a matter of lipping the notes down. There was no note bending involved because Jimmy Stamp had not arrived on the scene yet, nationwide anyway. Mm -hmm. So that, that cleared up the intonation problem. My sore lip went away. It helped my range, endurance, sound, everything. So that, that's always, that has been like the, sort of the basis of every, every instrument I've ever played. I never owned a Bach trumpet until I got to the Cleveland Orchestra. I went to Juilliard and LeBlanc. I may be the only person that ever went through Juilliard and LeBlanc trumpet. Wow. But, you know, ironically, Vakiana said, yeah, it's, it's too lightweight. He said, if you play with the big boys, it'll rattle. I had no idea what he was talking about because, I mean, it, you know, volume was never, never an issue. I mean, in fact, after I went to New York, my high school band director wrote me a letter and said, I now have all 12 trumpets playing first cornet parts when we march, and I still can't hear them. Because when, when I was there, I played solo cornet, and everybody else played second and third parts. Anyway, that was, <laughs> that was not uh, an issue. So, yeah. see, what happens you ask me one question, I go on forever. You, you're going to do a lot of, <laughs> lot of cutting. Please. <clears throat> well, I wanted to hear more about your, your days at Juilliard. Actually, I was, I was reading about it five days ago marked the 10th anniversary of the death of, of Bill Vacchiano. And I'd Has love to hear... it been 10 years already? It's been 10 years. Um, September 19th, I guess. Uh, wow. And so I wanted to hear some typical Vacchiano wisdom from your lessons with him, like what your lessons were like, what he would say to today's players. Any, any thoughts on Vacchiano? Well, it was about, probably about 20 years ago, he said to me once, he, in fact, it was when he came up to, to Boston, I had him do a class at NEC. He said, you know what's wrong with the Trump players today, the students particularly? He said, no, he says, they're not hungry enough. And that, that may have a lot to do with it. I mean, I, when I went to Juilliard, it was, I'd auditioned for New England Conservatory, and, and Juilliard gave me $50 more, which sounds silly, except back then, the tuition for the whole year was $700. Mm -hmm. And Juilliard gave me $250, rather than $200. New England. I, I, I started the reel-to-reel -reel tape that I, never sent to New England because I didn't like the way it sounded. <laughs> because even back then they had tape auditions possible. How much do you want for it? For the reel-to-reel -reel tape? tape? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't thought about that, but yeah, just getting started. I, I still wouldn't send it, but <laughs> be that as it may. Anyway, I got into Juilliard, but I had to go to Juilliard to audition. And I remember Vacchiano had a tie clasp. Back then they wore tie clasps, right? With the LeBlanc emblem on it, because I didn't, I never seen a Vaca on a mute. I didn't realize LeBlanc made those mutes for him. <laughs> so my first lesson, and Vaca learns knew seven different languages. He taught himself by reading the Bible in the various languages. I mean, that's shows you how how dedicated he was. Wow. But I, my name is misspelled at least fifty percent of the time. They switch the e and the u. Mm -hmm which probably any other language wouldn't matter, but a German name, even though... Schleuder. Yeah. So I walk in my first lesson. Oh, also, he had called me to set up a time, and told me what books I needed, and one of the ones was St. Jacome, which I didn't have. So I walk in for my first lesson. He says, hey, Schleuder, you're that guy from Germany? <laughs> I said, no, sir, I'm from Southern Illinois, because I had Midwestern twang drawl back then. He said, did I hear your audition? I said, yes, sir. He said, I don't remember you at all. Well, I mean, talk about cutting somebody's legs off immediately. <laughs> so I, 
I said, no, I, I remember because you had the Thai class. He says, oh, yeah. So I started playing. I mean, it started with page 59 in the Arvin book. I couldn't play a C major scale for it because as good as my previous teachers, they never talked about subdividing. So, I mean, what I know, I, I couldn't play it. We did, yeah. And then he pulled up and, oh, he got off the St. Jacob. He says, why do you have a new St. Jacob? I said, you told me I needed a St. Jacob. He says, no, why do you have a new St. Jacob? I said, are you? I didn't have one. He says, are you sure? I said, I'm sure. He says, can I pull that same crap in Schlossberg? He said, I came up with a new book, and he thought I could read like a son of a gun. He said, I had the whole book memorized by the time I went to sleep. I said, you don't have to worry about a thing. <laughs> so it was one of the, I can't remember which number, of the, which etude, but it was for a transposition. I mean, I, it was a disaster. I mean, I had already learned studied transmission, but transmission was not, that was not one of the easier things for me to learn. And that was his big emphasis. So most, most of us were the, the Sox transposition. And he dwelt a great deal on e-natural transposition. And I didn't have anything but a B-flat trumpet until my last year at Juilliard when I bought a LeBlanc, uh, sorry, a, a French Besson C trumpet from him. <clears throat> so I I learned some of the orchestral excerpts on a B flat trumpet, including Don Juan and a few of the other. You know. E natural transmission is the best reason for learning to play a C trumpet of anything, any other reason you can come up with. Yeah. But it was finally finally that I guess it was, uh, and I mean I I could never do anything right, you know, or at least that that's the way it seemed to me and. I could tell how badly my lessons went by how many cigarettes Vakar could smoke in a 45-minute lesson. <laughs> I mean, it was, it, when they were really bad, I mean, he would, he, I went, remember he smoked seven cigarettes in 45, you can't even do that. I mean, non-filtered cigarettes, I mean, they, they last close to 10 minutes. I, I know, because I smoked non-filtered, because I was trying to do everything Vakar did. <laughs> <laughs> it's the secret to his success, right. filtered cigarettes. But, uh, yeah, we, we went, in, and he never did listen to, to anything. Uh, and I, I ended up teaching the same way, and, and the, the basis for that is that he could find out whether I was getting the information that he was giving to me by what I did in, in succeeding etudes or whatever I played. We, I was fortunate enough that there, were, there was no solo repertoire except for the Haydn. I heard the first modern performance of the Hummel in 1958, mm -hmm. the Catala did at Town Hall. Wow. So we, now we had the Hummel, uh, there was no Neruda, uh, there was very little Baroque repertoire because Ed Tarr and Don Smithers hadn't discovered all the, the repertoire for natural trumpet. So people were not, trumpet players weren't interested in, in being soloists back then. Maurice Andre had not you know, risen to the top. In fact, there was one recording, it was one of those 10-inch red vinyl LPs by this unknown French trumpet player, Maurice Andre, of the Torelli D Major Concerto. I mean, that, that was you know, long before. There were basically two, two models of piccolo trumpets back then. There was the, the Quainon, which is what Manger used and was probably the most popular. 
There was one made by Mahion, which is one I had, and they made two models. One was like coiled up, the other was like a, a herald trumpet, mm -hmm. and that's the one I had. Which, that, that trumpet was very impressive. It, it got me several jobs just by putting the thing together because it was so <laughs> unique. This guy must be great. Look <clears throat> that trumpet. And the crazy thing about that is that only one mouthpiece would work on this, and it was it was a Bach mouthpiece that said P1C, which I later discovered meant pick, right? It was probably smaller than a 10 half C, but it worked on that horn. And if you woke me up in the middle of the night, I could at least play the Brandenburg, last one with the Brandenburg, right? Even if I couldn't play anything else, which was the case when I auditioned for Milwaukee. But that, that, that's another digression. Anyway, I, I, I bought, uh, bought a Mahion D trumpet also. Um, which, I mean, that company is now out of business. If you, if you look at the bottom, or in, in the Charlie book, he mentions Mahillon uh -huh. many times because Charlie was Belgian and you know, Mahillon was a Belgian company. Um, so that, how far did I dig, digress from what you asked me? <laughs> we were talking about Vacchiano and, yeah. and what his lessons were like and right. who he and, was as a person. And it was, uh, it was really excruciating because, I mean, I used to fantasize about having a good lesson. I don't know what a good lesson is, but I don't think I ever had one with him. And I, I had no idea whether he thought I could do anything at all because I, I don't think I had much of a self-image. The fact that my second year in Juilliard, this would have been like 19, yeah, it was like January of 1959, I was hired to play fifth trumpet on the Mahler First Symphony. That often, that part is not even used most of the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, that should have told me something. I mean, I'm one of like, what, 25 students he had at, at Juilliard at that time. But, you know, it was, oh, it's great. You know, I was sitting between Johnny Ware and, and Ed Irwin, who was assistant principal trombone at that time. But I'd learned that, that Vacchiano was right. I mean, that LeBlanc compared to, the, the, I had to work hard to keep up with those guys. Mm -hmm. Well, on the other hand, if I, if I kind of came into school and he didn't have any students scheduled right, well, he'd find wherever I was practicing and borrow my LeBlanc trumpet to practice on, right? <laughs> so there were some mixed messages going on there. Sure. But I, I remember, I think it was like my last year, and we, we really did orchestral excerpts. He did like there was this, this series of, which I think, been out of print by somebody named Neuhaus, and there was one volume that was all Verdi operas, and Bill loved that. I mean, he loved opera. Being Italian, I could not like opera, right? So we, I remember going through that, you know, all, all the Verdi operas, uh, some that I've never heard, most of them I've never played since then. But he also used the Aaron Harris Advanced Studies, which are most, I don't know, are you familiar with that? The book. I'm not. Aaron Harris was a euphonium player, but he also played viola. I mean, I don't know what it is about trumpet players and viola, but that, that back in the early part of the, the 20th century, almost everybody played more than one instrument. I think it was because there, you know, there were large families, and a lot of, often people, various members of the family, played instruments. They had like their little, you know, family orchestra. Mm -hmm. right? <clears throat> so most of these etudes are either Bach unaccompanied uh, partitas or violin etudes. And after I met my wife, I found out that 
you know, I said, hey, I heard a practice. I said, I've got that etude. That's when I, I guess I read the text. You know, the, he was, with, with etude books, it's like you know, with, with computers, you read the manual as last resort, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, I was playing this etude in, in G flat major, just, I mean, that was still a hard key. I mean, even though it was my last year. And I was scuffing with this, and I guess he slammed his hand down, and he said, damn it, I don't understand why you have trouble with this. He said, the students like Mel Broyles and Gatala and, and Teddy Weiss, they never had trouble with it. Why do you have trouble with it? And he said, well, if you don't have any talent, there's not much you can do. And I mean, I, I could have walked out under the crack under the door then. Didn't realize until about a year later, that was probably the biggest compliment he'd ever paid me because he didn't give compliments. He never said that was good. You know, this. He was put, linking me in with his most successful students at that time. Yeah. It still is a hard etude. I mean, I, every now and then I go back and torture myself <laughs> with it just, just as you know, a reminder. But my first job out of, out of school was uh, American Ballet Theater tour. We had a, it was a 20-week tour by bus across the entire United States. You say, join the Navy, see the world, you can join the ballet theater and do that also. Um, it was broken up in two parts, so it, uh, I think we had four weeks off between, I think the first was seven weeks, yeah, and then 13 weeks. But there were, there were no, the international musician didn't publish, you know, audition uh, notices. You sort of heard it by you know, word of mouth or however it happened. So I used to write letters, you know, saying I played, you know, my resume was like one sentence. Um, a lot of places didn't even bother to answer. Or if they answered you at all, they'd give you, you get a postcard, right? Mm -hmm. so you know, we have no openings at this time. Yeah. So Kansas City opened up and I auditioned and uh, My wife was a violinist, so she also auditioned. And I think that was the main reason I got hired as principal trumpet because I had it was like a package deal, right? Yeah. <clears throat> I didn't. That's nice, though. That's fortunate. You can both. Oh yeah, I go mean, at the same time. Yeah. Between the two of us, we made six thousand dollars a year, and it was okay. a twenty-four week season, which sure. meant that the you know most of the people who'd been in that orchestra for any length of time, you know, it, it, usually people came and left after a couple of years because it was, it was, it was, it was not a, it's not a well-run uh, organization. They really treated the musicians badly and, you know, that's another story. In fact, I was ready to get out of the business altogether when I, when I, after my second year. Wow. So I'd love to get into a little bit of the trumpet nitty gritties. Um, you know, you did an interview uh, with your good friend Dave Monette back in 2008 that I was watching. Lots of his questions and your answers uh, seem to be focused around the huge palette of tone colors and, and the spectrum of, of color that you're in particular uh, able to produce uh, with your sound. And that's one of your distinctive uh, markings as a trumpet player. Um, so I'm hoping that you can give some suggestions for today's trumpet player who wants to work on this aspect of trumpet playing. How do you go about achieving a broad spectrum uh, from your trumpet palette? Well, <clears throat> that that has, even before I met Dave, I mean that was sort of the the basis of my concept of, of sound. Um, 
I remember hearing, you know, probably before I went to Julia, that, you know, you got to nail that guy in the top of the balcony. Well, my immediate reaction to that was, what about all the people sitting on the side? So it was, it was always a matter of having the, the broadest possible sound to, to fill up whatever room you're playing in. Mm-hmm. And the basis of that, of course, is everything else related to the trumpet is, is, is the way the uh, way we, we use our, the air. And that, of course, is you know, there's a lot of different ways of doing that. There is no one way. But having studied with, with two of Gustav's students, I mean, that was part of the concept, was to play with, with the maximum amount of resonance in the sound. And that's, that's followed me through, and, and that was the thing about when I started playing Monet trumpets in 1983, that that allowed me to do that much more than, than anything else I'd played. And, I, you know, there, there's <clears throat> no point in getting into it because I have no answers for, for why. I, I, I have thoughts about it, but there's no point in saying it. But back in the early days, I mean, nobody ever criticized when you were taking an audition what, what kind of instrument you used or, or what, what kind of mouthpiece you used. In most, most cases, the conductor didn't know diddly squat about any of that stuff anyway. <clears throat> and I, I won my first job playing that, that Besson C. I won the second job playing a Martin. I won the third job playing a Getson. I think probably Doc and I were the only professional trumpet players playing Getson trumpets back in the mid-60s, right? <clears throat> and I had met Doc. That's another story that'll probably fit in with another one of your questions later <laughs> on. But <clears throat> I remember in, in Cleveland, I was, it was suggested I buy a Bach trumpet uh, which I did, and that started that whole thing with with the different three different lead pipes. That's all, but mostly due to what what I instigated. Mm-hmm. Which, if I hadn't been in the Clean Orchestra, I mean, the Bach Company would have given me the time of day, but you know, they accommodated my my peculiarities, I guess. Sure. Um, in nineteen, I guess it was nineteen eighty three. I met Eloise Ristad. Do you you familiar with that name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, soprano on her head. Right. right. I only knew Eloise for probably less than two years before she died in that tragic canoe accident. But she had a probably as big an impact on on me as any of the other teachers I had, just from the conceptual standpoint. How so? What what specifically did she unlock for you? Well, one of the ways you you can you can get this broader sound is that you you be aware of whatever's in your peripheral vision. Right? You don't have to catalog it, but I mean, and you can experiment with this. If if you look at your fingers and play something, and then play the same thing, you can still look at your fingers and make sure you're wherever the sound will change dramatically hmm. without doing any, being aware of any difference in what you're doing physically. Interesting. First time I experienced that, I was doing a class at the Toho School in Japan. We were on tour with the chamber players, and this. Japanese fellow played, a, I think it was an etude. I can't remember what the etude was. A lot of notes, just as clean as could be, and the sound you could put through the eye of a needle. So we were in this room. It was a little bit wider than this. On one wall was a chalkboard, 
green that, that you know, the chalkboards are cut. I don't know who came up with that color. But the, the walls were that institutional pale green. The other wall was, was all windows, and outside were the ginkgo trees with the green leaves. And for some reason, a lot of Japanese buildings have the tile roofs are either blue or red. These were like emerald green. So I said through my translator to this kid, just be aware of all the different colors, all the different shades of green. He played it again. It was literally eye-opening. I mean, he couldn't believe it. The people in the audience couldn't believe it. I could hardly believe it, even though I, I hoped that would happen. Right? Yeah. And that was the only difference. You know? But it, it's hard. It, it's not something that once you know about it, that it happens automatically. You know, nothing happens automatically on the trumpet anyway, right? Right, of course, of course. <coughs> but yeah. that's that's always sort of been the underlying um, basis for my playing is, is the conceptual aspect. And in fact, I've, I've been I've been writing a book for over thirty-five years. I'm, that's one of my projects I hope to finish before I check out, which I don't have any plans for that yet. But good. But it, it, most people stop conceptualizing after they figure out what to do with their mouth to play a particular note when they first start playing. So you can tell them to play a, a G or a C. It's not only how it sounds, but how it, how it feels. Mm -hmm. And but that playing the, the the prescribed pitch is only one one aspect of that that, that total sound. So you have to be aware of, of the dynamic, the color which nobody ever talks about timbre or anything else, which you know gets back to how the air is used. If, if you use more velocity rather than the volume of air moving more slowly, it's going to cause the sound to, to be less broad. It's going to be more concentrated. But it also, by doing that, limits the dynamic range. It, it makes the, the soft not quite as soft, makes the loud not quite as loud, maybe more intense, but it's not not in decibel volume. It doesn't increase. <clears throat> so that's that's sort of the the underlying basis. And I, I compare, you know, your your basic sound, which is one of maximum resonance and minimum intensity, to an artist's palette, which you know you, you have a, you can have different sized palettes, but if you're going to do a big painting like this one, you need to have a lot of as many different colors of paint possible, since so you can mix them and blend them. Sure. Because that's that's what we're dealing with in terms of, of timbre on, on the trumpet, because it's not just a trumpet sound. There are times you have to blend with the woodwinds, times you have to blend with the horns, times you have to blend with the strings, and it all requires you know, a slight difference. And you you can't prescribe that and say, okay, I'm going to use you know this color here or this color. It's it's done through the the audio or oral oral system, which brings me to one of my little side things. We have basically three learning modes. We have the visual, the oral, and the kinesthetic. Also have the uh, olfactory, which is I used to fantasize about how I could teach people through smell, <laughs> which I've that's been accomplished a little bit because all my students relate to my pipe and coffee, right? Mm -hmm. And I've had. On several occasions, a student come back who's having some problem, 
either with, with the trumpet or with, with you know, the mouth or whatever. If I play like a dozen notes on the trumpet and give it back to him, all the problems are solved. I mean, it's, <laughs> so I, I still have, I figured out how to have a, a scratch and sniff page but that, that, that would only be useful for people who've had any lessons with me at all, right? Well, you, were, you were part of kind of a revolution in the orchestral world in that you, you were probably even the instigator of, of this particular idea with your choice to play a Monet instrument in your job. And then you found that helped you to get the best it, color palette. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can describe some of the challenges you faced in bringing a new tone color to a very conservative orchestral world. Well, I mean, I, I think... I think it was just an extension of what I've been doing because, I mean, my, my sound, which I, I went through the, the, the evolutionary process of, you know, trying to imitate what Vaciano sounded like because I, and that sound was in my head. I listened to recordings of Harry Glantz. He'd already retired, but the recordings were, you know, very, very true to the sound. I listened to Vaciano. Oh, sorry about no. that. No, no sweat. It only rings twice and then okay. goes to. Is it the postman? It's, it's somebody wants money. Vaikano <laughs> recommended that I go listen to Boston Symphony recordings with Kusevitsky when Majer was there. And that, that is, I still remember that one of the first things I listened to was the Parsifal prelude. I must have listened to it I don't know, at least a half a dozen times. I said, where's the trumpet? I don't hear any trumpet. I mean, following this. I realized what, what I thought was the the ballsiest violin section in the world was Magier, adding that color. But it, it, whether it was because he was also a violist, or I mean, I had he died before I, you know, ever had a chance to talk to him about this. But I think it was probably because he had an extremely broad sound, and whether it was because he was, you know, had been trained in France, I, I have no idea. But they. They often talked about, you know, the French vibrato. I, I mean, Roger was French and his vibrato was like as opposite from Magier as anything could be. However, there are a lot of the repertoire that Roger has the patent on also. So it, I, I became aware of, of, of tone color. Back in the 50s, the Berlin Philharmonic <clears throat> did a series of recordings on the archive label. Uh, one was Matisse de Mahler with Hindemith conducting. And another one was uh, the Christmas Oratorio, which I have on LP. I managed to get find it. That's the only thing I think I ever bought on, on eBay. Hmm. The principal trumpet at that time was a man named Fritz Wesenich, which, I mean, he had a sound that I could identify more than Vaciano or Glantz or Magier. And I, I can't put into words what it was, but if you turn on the radio and I, there was anything with trumpet, I could tell you, I said, that's the Berlin Philharmonic. Mm -hmm. Because I mean, of that sound. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he obviously was playing Monka instruments. Whether, whether he played the Christmas Oratorio on a Monka piccolo, whether they even made them back then, I have I never heard of them. I, I assumed he was playing a, a D trumpet. But the sound was like a giant bell. You know, it had so much ring and life. So that when, when people talk to me about you know, rotary trumpets have a darker sound. That's absolute nonsense. I mean, I don't know why anyone would, would think that, except you get into a problem with using descriptive words describing sounds. Because I once knew someone in New York who thought that 
Falciano had a bright sun and Harry Glantz had a dark sun, which is about as opposite of anything I would ever describe them. But what what the Rotary Trumpets do, and, and you know, I, I first played a Rotary Trumpet in the Cleveland Orchestra, and then Chicago started using them, and now everybody uses them, is that this, because of the, the way the, the, the tubing is wrapped, the sound is more dispersed. In other words, it it's why it's easier to blend with the horns or blend with, with whatever, because it doesn't have as much intensity to the sound that the piston trumpets that we play have. They're actually much smaller bore than what we play in this country, but because of the flare of the belt and, and the, so the, the rap, it slows that air down going out. <coughs> I mean, <coughs> anybody that thinks rotary trumpets have a dark sound, go listen to recording the Vienna Philharmonic. I mean, that doesn't change your mind immediately. You know, if nothing else will. Yeah. But that's, you know, that the, I, I use the rotary trumpets a lot, but only like up to the beginning of the 20th century. I use it for, for Bruckner, but not for Mahler. Uh -huh. right? Because, partly because they, they orchestrated differently. And Dvorak, I, I played on, on both piston and, and rotary, and that, that seems to be sort of, for me, was like the tilting point. It could go either way, depending on, on which, which symphony it was. Mm -hmm. But, but with these decisions that you're making, with you know playing it on a rotary versus not Bruckner versus Mahler, uh, where some people would play them all on rotary, or some people would only play them all on piston, well, in, in and especially the tone colors that you brought to the scene, which other trumpet players weren't doing, and your instrument helped you to do that. What did that create difficulty with with people when they're expecting one sound and maybe getting another? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't. I don't know whether they could pinpoint what it was. I think what you touched briefly the, the issues I had in the Boston. I think, but the Bach trumpet I had when I came here was gold plated, shiny gold. Right, the first one that trumpets were raw brass, mm -hmm. and I think that probably had some sort of a, a, a visual effect on the music director at that time, thinking that I had a bad attitude or something because I went from a gold trumpet to this ratty old looking. I, someone, one of the audience members, once wrote a letter to the management, complaining about how the, the, the tonish instrument, because all the horn players used, you know, raw brass instruments, and I had, and they probably would have taken them seriously until they said they were also upset when you saw the name on the repercussion instruments, so they sort of disregarded that that complaint. But you know the, the visual ear is very important. I mean, a lot of trumpet players resisted playing rotary trumpets initially. In fact, there were a lot of orchestras that got it written in the contract that if you played a rotary trumpet, it was considered a double, or you got paid extra for, mm -hmm. for playing. I, I never went that route because I didn't want the conductor to tell me what kind of instrument I was supposed to be using. If he didn't trust my judgment, then you know, having the one that looks the way he thinks it, it should is going to satisfy that. Yeah. But that, I mean, I also use cornets. In fact, when I, when I auditioned for, for the Cleveland Orchestra, after audition, Zell called me and said, you know, we use cornets when the cornet parts. I said, yeah, I have a cornet. He says, no, no, we have a match set of French Besson cornets with a real cornet mouthpiece and a real French lead pipe. And I said, well, I know what a cornet mouthpiece is. I have no idea what a French lead pipe is. Yeah. Do you know what a French lead Nope. It's the one that comes out. I, in other words, it, it, you can change. The, like most piccolo trumpet heads. 
today. Yeah, except this, this, there's no there's no tiny. It just, it just you know fits in the, the right taper. Anyway, that that very often if a conductor sees what he thinks he wants to hear, I remember once once Penstead was conducting. We were doing a Bruckner Fourth, and he looked back. He says, "Yeah, German trumpets." And somebody near the front said, Japanese German. He said, no, 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 no. Because Yamaha had given a set of rotary trumpets to the Boston Symphony. Right. <laughs> so we ended up playing the Brooklyn Symphony on, on piston trumpets. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> from, from an audio standpoint, even I can't always tell whether someone's playing a, a rotary or not. And I always felt you shouldn't be able to tell that much. It should fit inappropriately with whatever the, the repertoire is. Mm -hmm. So no matter what trumpet you right. tried to play, that informed your approach. In fact, I, I, that was my same trumpet. attitude with, with the, the smaller trumpets. And I, I went through a period of, of playing a lot on D-Trump because Vacchiano, you know, was a big, D-Trump was a big part of his, what he advocated. In fact, the last few years, uh, when he was in the orchestra, he played D-Trumpet on almost everything. In fact, I, I could always tell when from the top of Carnegie Hall when he was playing a D because that was when he had the biggest sound of all. Wow. Which, you know, that always... <laughs> I always wondered about that. What but, was his sound like? Can you just... I mean, just, I know it's tough to put the sound into words, but, you know, you talked about earlier bright versus dark. Well, it, it, it was brilliant, and it was big, and it, it dominated without... Overpowering. In fact, I always Bill was like the stabilizer in the orchestra. I mean, the, the, things could be getting a little rocky. If he came in with whatever it was, whatever the piece, it's like it brought everything. It had a gravity. Together. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And and I think the the one characteristic of his sound that was probably the first time I was aware of it is that it had presence, which. It wasn't just a matter of hearing, it was like the sound would almost reach out and, and touch you. Not like a poke in the eye, but you know, it was more like a, a caress, I guess. Mm -hmm. But again, you, you started using verbal ways of describing the sound and you get into trouble. In fact, most people think that bright and brilliant are the same. And it was only Monet who differentiated that they're opposites. Mm -hmm. Bright is when you have no bottom in the sound because that was you know, one, one of the things that, that one of his goals was to have more fundamental in the sound. Brilliant is when you have that fundamental and you have all the high frequencies available also. And, you know, the, there might be people who can say, oh, I'm going to make the fifth more prominent here. I, I could never do that. That's like, you know, dialing in a note. But you you can do it with your ears. I mean, if in fact, I I also... I'm not a big fan of long tones, which a lot of trumpet players are. It's like if you want to put your mind to sleep, then practice long tones. Hmm. But if you want to, if you insist on practicing long tones, then practice them with the idea of of keeping the volume the same and changing the color. You know, making making it more brilliant, making it darker, making it more mellow. What whatever you you can make it. Trying to make it sound like a clarinet, trying to make it sound like more of a cornet or a French horn. Because that's done with whatever is in your head, and that also goes back to what what you listen to and what made the first impact on. Because I, 
I mentioned, you know, that I went through this whole period of, you know, being influenced by, by Vakiano or Glantz or Magier or, or uh, Bud Herseth. Um, and after, after about 10 years, I guess, of playing professionally, I went back to visit Eddie Brower and we ended up playing duets. And it suddenly hit me. I sounded more like Ed than any of the other people that I'd studied with or mm -hmm. that I'd been, thought I'd been influenced by. Yeah. So those early impressions are important. I mean, I, I grew up without a phonograph. I didn't have a, any, <laughs> any thing to play rec records on until I got married. That's how deprived I was. But I listened to the radio a lot. <clears throat> and I, I didn't realize, you know, the, the trumpet players I was, I was hearing. I mean, I did hear some recordings of Harry James. I mean, he had a big influence. Of course, all the, my detractors, you know, you got to be another Harry James. <laughs> no, I, I wasn't. I mean, except for maybe being married to Betty Grable, who was a distant cousin of my mother's by, by marriage, which oh, is wow. another story. But <laughs> I also listened to the, the City Service Band of America, and I was hearing Gatala play back like in the early 50s. I didn't know, didn't know from Gatala. I never heard him until I got to, to New York and went to his recital. Um, but I, I, they had, there was the Bing Crosby show. I think it was Billy, Billy Butterfield was the, the lead trumpet. I mean, and he played the, the theme of, you know, for, so I, I, without being aware, I was hearing, you know, some, you know, great trumpet players. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. No one can teach anyone anything. You can only teach yourself. Mm -hmm. The best thing any teacher can do is to get a student to think and to broaden their their thought process because that's that's not only in the, applying to trumpet, but our whole education system is ba basically teaching people what to think, not how to think, which is partly responsible for why we're in the fix we're in right now in the, <laughs> this whole country. But the whole world is like that. I mean, there there are places that women are not allowed to be educated because it's it's a dangerous thing. Any, it's only been recently that that it's been a negative to, to, to try to become more educated to learn something. You know, if you don't follow the the prescribed learning path. Yeah, yeah. And that I think trumpet players have a tendency to. Again, I, I mentioned the, the you know an orchestra is a microcosm. Playing the trumpet is even more of a microcosm because we get locked into definite routines and that you can only do this before you do this. Um, life isn't like that. I mean, I've known trumpet players who, and I, I used this Gustav routine probably for 35 years. I find is, I don't really need to do all that. I mean, I can, I can accomplish what needs to be done probably in the first five minutes because those people who have this rigid warm-up routine often they have nothing left to play when they're supposed to get into a rehearsal or a performance. And if you go through the whole routine and you get in rehearsal, the conductor decides he's going to rehearse the strings for 20 minutes. You're sitting there. I mean, or you, or you have a tacit movement in a symphony. You can't say that you're warmed up. Sure. When I came to Boston, the rest of the section had whisper mutes that they were playing along like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, I said, sorry, guys. I mean, from the audience standpoint, that looks crazy. Yeah. I mean, people looking to see the trumpet players playing, you have nothing to play. <laughs> but that's, you know, that's, that's part of the, <laughs> the, the trumpet players' neuroses, you know. Uh, someone once 
said and referred to me that you know I, I, I would play like right up to the time of concert start. <laughs> the response was he said, yeah, because he's afraid if he doesn't do that, the hole will close up. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I'm gonna I'm gonna start telling people that. <laughs> I like that better than what I say. Well, the trumpet's a really physical instrument. The muscles, you have to, oh, the hole's gonna close up if I don't. So well, That's way that, better. That, that, so it's time now for Charlie Schluter's version of the Brass Chats Monster Round, in which. We ask him a bunch of one or two word answer questions and he rapid fires the answer right off the top of his head. So, sir, Mr. Schluter, are you ready? I think so. All right, here it goes. How old were you when you first picked up a trumpet? About ten and a half. What's your favorite place to play the trumpet? Mm. Performing or practicing? Either. Well, I like my studio, but I also, I mean, the halls, Symphony Hall is still the, the best acoustic. Still number one. Uh, what's the favorite place you've ever traveled to? Ooh. Um, in South America. In fact, Iguazu Falls was probably the most amazing place I've ever seen. Wow. What's the highest note you ever played on purpose? Hmm. Well, with my new decorated trumpet, I have played an F above double high C wow. as an actual note. In fact, I sometimes play excerpts of an octave higher just for the fun of it. I have no use for those, but... What a jock. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's Can't ego wait to get started. Yeah. Yeah. To, to play the, the end of Rosen Cavalier an octave higher, I mean... Hey. Oh, that sounds like a yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why not? Uh, all right, what's your favorite movie? The, the the Matt Damon the 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 Ludlow the movies yeah the Bourne yeah, yeah. yeah. all right what uh, you know this is your last meal what are you eating probably pasta that's what I eat for almost every other meal <laughs> who's your least favorite composer anybody throughout history oh um, Earl Brown oh yeah, we're gonna see? have to do some research all right. Who's the, your favorite performer you heard on the radio? You talked about radio a lot earlier. Who was just who was your jam? Uh, probably Sinatra. What's the hardest solo you ever played? It, it was it was probably either in West Side Story or Porgy and Bess because those are two hardest pieces I ever had to play. The the complete shows. The complete shows. Yeah. yeah. If you could commission any composer in history to write you a solo, who would you pick? Probably Mozart. What's the most powerful weapon you've ever held in your hand? Probably an M1 rifle in basic training. What's your biggest fear? Politics. Good answer. What career would you choose besides music? Um, I probably would have been... Uh, a chef. What was or is the greatest big band of all time? Well, it'd be a toss-up between Basie and Ellington, but the the band I, the Maynard had back in the late fifties was, you know, I heard it when when Chase was playing uh, oh, lead wow. for a while. Yeah, scary. Um, speaking of scary, <laughs> what trumpet player, alive or dead, would make the best president of the United States? Ooh. Doc Severinsen. Who's your favorite painter or artist? 
Matisse. You mentioned earlier you read most of your books on iPad these days, but what's the last book you read? Hmm. It's probably Don Leone. You, you know her works? I don't. She's got a whole, whole series. She lives in, she's American, but she lives in Venice. Oh, cool. Her first book was Death at La Fenice. I like that title. Where the conductor got killed, so she had me hooked right away. <laughs> uh, what's the worst encounter you've had with a police officer? I don't know if it's the worst, but it was certainly the strangest. I got I got a ticket for jaywalking in New York City in about 1960. In New York City? What? 72nd and Broadway. <laughs> oh, my God. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I ignored it until they sent me a postcard with it said that a bench warrant had been issued for my arrest if I didn't pay the fine. <laughs> That's better than anything I, I could I have I, I never know anybody else who got a ticket for jaywalking in New York. I don't know anybody that got a ticket for jaywalking anywhere, but especially New York. Right. <laughs> You're under arrest for jaywalking. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. All right, uh, who's the best conductor you ever played for? Uh, probably Lenny Bernstein. I mean, there, I, I have, you know, like maybe top four or five conductors. Tenstedt would rank very high up there. Yeah, let's hear him. Um, Leinsdorf, um, Heiting, Zell, though I played, I didn't play that much with him. Um, they're all Bernstein was probably the the one absolute genius because he could he could find things in a piece that you thought you knew pretty well that yeah. like nobody ever discovered that before. Wow, you're on a desert island. You get one orchestral recording to take with you. Which one do you take? Probably the the Mahler Five with Bruno Walter that Vaucan did in about 1949 or so. All right, if you were a talk show host, who would you have on as your first guest? Maybe Ernie Moniz, who was on Colbert a couple of nights ago. Did you see that? I didn't. He was on the second half when Trump was on the first half. I mean, I've known Ernie for almost 30 years because my original, my first Brazilian student lived in their house over in Brookline. Yeah, Ernie's uh, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Wow. What aspect of trumpet playing is the most difficult to master? Being able to produce the sound that you want in your head. What's your favorite instrument, not including the trumpet? It would either be the violin or the horn, depending on you know the player of that. Yeah. And then finally... Which of your performances would you like to be remembered for? That's really hard since I can't remember most of the performances I did. Uh, I did Messiah with Era Berberian when I was in Milwaukee. I don't know if you remember who Berberian was. He was about probably 6'5". <laughs> and he's the only time I was never asked to play softer on the trumpet sound because he had enormous voice 
enormous lungs. I mean, he could he could sing forever. It seemed like in one breath, you know. Wow. And it was it was great fun, you know, trying to keep up with him. Say, thank oh. you very much to Charles Schluter for your time. It was a pleasure <laughs> speaking with you. Uh, thank you.